Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Exactly one year ago today, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Think about everything we've been through in the U.S. this past year. School closings, mask mandates, the constant anxiety, and the unthinkable human toll. And when you think back to those early days, your timeline likely begins sometime around March, right? But there were some people out there who saw this coming weeks, even months before the rest of us. This time last year, I'd already been in it for two months. That's Helen Branswell. She's a senior writer at the health publication Stat. And in January 2020, while COVID wasn't even in our vocabulary, for Helen, it was the only thing on her mind. To be honest, there were a few days I had a hard time getting out of bed because I was just like, oh, this is just so big and this is going to be so bad. Helen specializes in covering infectious diseases and global health. She's been doing this work since the 2003 SARS outbreak in Toronto. But nothing, nothing in her career has been like COVID. One of the earliest signs it was going to be bad was on January 23rd, 2020. That's when the city of Wuhan locked down. That was a very, very clear signal that they had a huge problem. Nobody puts an entire city of 11 million people on lockdown if you can help it. I mean, it's just such an extraordinary measure. I think a couple of days after that, I was having a conversation with a scientist, Trevor Bedford. He studies the genetic sequences of pathogens to sort of try to estimate how long they've been spreading and where they've been spreading from. Helen says at the time... Dr. Bedford thought there was only around 13 known cases outside of China. That is until she broke the news to him. And I said, oh, oh no, actually, you know, they've revised the number. It's now 40. And he cursed. Like, it was completely involuntary. It was just something that I can't say here. And I could hear him trying to calculate what that meant and trying not just to calculate the number, but take in that the spread outside of China was already probably quite a bit bigger than he had thought just a second or two before. And then he said, you know, if that's the case, then I have a hard time seeing how this isn't going to be a pandemic. Wow. And that was kind of a buckle-up moment. It was a buckle-up moment in more ways than one. It didn't just signal to Helen and people like Dr. Bedford that we were on track to see a pandemic forming. It was also an early sign for us here in the United States to get ready, a warning of what was to come. It wasn't very politically correct in the United States, or at least it wasn't an accepted point of view, but there were people who were acknowledging that China bought the world time. We should have used it better, but they bought the world time by taking the actions that they did in Wuhan. So why do you think American leaders were so slow to recognize that? It was very puzzling. And when you say America's leaders, I mean, some of America's leaders never acknowledged that China bought the world time, um, you know, in March and April when the United States and the rest of the outside world understood what they were up against. There was still a lot of criticism of China. There was much more discussion about what China had unleashed on the world than buying the world time. But I spent a lot of February of 2020 really puzzled by how slowly everybody seemed to be moving and how people were trying to act like everything was normal almost. 
About two weeks later, on February 11th, Helen was moderating a panel at the Aspen Institute. There was a whole lot of big hitters from the world of public health there, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and a CDC official named Dr. Nancy Messonnier. And, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Messonnier were kind of playing down the situation. Dr. Fauci said something to the effect of, you know, the risk to Americans is low. And I just said, you know, why do you say that? How can you say that? There isn't a force field around China. Right. It's not going to stop there. Again, it's the message. When you say the long range, low risk right now, should they be frightened about what's going on? Right now, we have 13 people they're in identification, isolation, and contact tracing. I pressed them into the point where Dr. Fauci said, what do you want me to say? Could it be a pandemic? Of course it could be a pandemic. Is there a risk that this is going to turn into a global pandemic? Absolutely, yes, there is. But, you know, we don't know yet that it's going to be. I couldn't understand it. And I eventually said this virus is going to do exactly the same thing outside of China as it did inside of China. And both he and Dr. Messonnier talked about the fact that while we're not seeing it take off in the explosive way that it did in China, you know, we're watching, but for now, we do think that the risk is low. I just want to add that I know, because you've been asking me this question for a couple of weeks, and I think the thing to think about in the U.S. is there's only so much worrying that you can do every day, right? (laughs) What would it be, Helen, if we got up and said, okay, Hi, this is Nancy and I telling you, we really, really got a big risk of getting completely wiped out. And then nothing happens. Then your credibility is gone. American officials were not the only ones initially downplaying how bad this could get. I talked to a scientist I know, somebody from Canada, who'd been at a meeting at the World Health Organization in that period, sort of about the third week of February. And he said that all the Asian scientists who were at this meeting were nervous as hell. They were just literally sort of thrumming in their chairs. But he said, you know, the Europeans were all like, oh, it's not going to come here. So it, it wasn't just American leaders. I think that there was sort of willful blindness almost that hopefully this wasn't going to turn into what it turned into. Helen says this was the window to take action. At this point in mid-February, COVID-19 had only infected about 67,000 people, and only about 1,500 people had died around the world. The United States had an opportunity to try to get ahead of this, but then... Ten days later, 12 days later, first Iran and then Italy had explosive outbreaks, large numbers of cases, and and it became very clear then that the virus did exactly the same thing outside of China that it did in China. And soon, it would hit the United States. There were outbreaks in Seattle, New York, and we were completely unprepared. The United States was almost out of personal protective equipment before the pandemic was declared a pandemic. That's clearly a problem. This time last year, doctors and nurses in hospitals were talking about being given one N95 respirator a week and having to carry it around in a paper bag and only pull it out to put it on when they were seeing a patient that they thought might have COVID and the rest of the time walking around with a surgical mask, which is supposed to be discarded, you know, after one use that they were using for days. I mean, this pandemic has pointed out 
so many weaknesses, and it won't be the last one. Helen, public health officials, they often talk about the big one in terms of pandemics. I know you've interviewed uh, Michael Ryan, the head of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program. You know, he said that this is not necessarily the big one. If we face another pandemic again, bigger, are we prepared? Well, no. <laughs> the reality is I don't think you're ever going to be fully prepared. Could we be better prepared? Absolutely. Has this experience shown us how poorly prepared we were? Sure. I mean, I hope that we all sort of have the wherewithal to remember what went wrong and fix it. What happens often after something like this is there will be a couple of reports done, they'll be scathing, but everybody will go back to what they were doing before, and we don't learn the lessons of this pandemic. That would be a horrible thing. That would be tragic. And what about this past year? What are you thinking after 12 months have passed since the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic? You hopeful? I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, am I hopeful? Yeah, I, I am hopeful. I mean, it's we are in just an extraordinarily fortunate situation right now. I mean, this time last year, when leaders of the United States, people like Dr. Fauci and people in the administration started talking about developing vaccines in a very short period of time. I told everybody who would listen, that's not going to happen. It takes a long time to develop vaccines. And I was wrong. And hallelujah. We are in a place now where the United States has three authorized vaccines. And that is just absolutely extraordinary. Thank you so much, Helen, for your excellent reporting and for being on Apple News today. Well, thank you for having me, Duarte. Tomorrow, Duarte and I are teaming up. Together, we interview Alexis Madrigal. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and a co-founder of the COVID-19 Tracking Project. Alexis told us that early on in the pandemic, he and his team identified a major weakness in the federal government's COVID-19 response, reliable data. This is the grandest failure of the whole thing. Everybody in the federal and state governments and all public health infrastructure, all pandemic preparedness planning, assumes a base layer of good data. And it turned out to be just this crucial, crucial problem. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.